Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Quick reminder that I just started a Patreon so that I can hire somebody to help me catch up on transcripts. So if you've been enjoying the show and you have a couple bucks to spare each month, I'd be so, so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. I don't have any fun perks set up yet, but once I figure that out, I'll make sure that any early supporters don't miss them. Today, I'm talking to Annie Smith about autism, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, feeding tubes, and incorporating diagnosis into your identity. And as a quick content note for this episode, we do talk a fair bit about weight loss, um, both as a symptom and as something that inspires a lot of unsolicited feedback. Uh, It comes up kind of twice once just in her chronological story and once while we're talking about feedback. But then I'd say after that, we don't talk about it again if you just don't want to hear that kind of discourse. Um, Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. So I like to ask, uh, how was your health as a kid? Um, my physical health as a kid was quite like in the background. Um, I've got autism, which wasn't diagnosed until I was 14. So there was a lot kind of going on around that. But I think there's a lot of stuff that now we kind of look back and go, hang on, that was like a signal that was just put down to the autism. Like I've got really bad coordination and problems with like, um, joint pain and clicking and stuff were quite present from very early on but it was all put down to like oh she's uncoordinated because she's autistic she's like complaining about pain because it's something else kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and I also had the classic it's growing pains from the doctor quite a lot and from my mum as well she said, oh, it's growing pains and then I got to 20 and it was still there and I was like I'm not growing anymore so so what's yeah. going on yeah exactly um I think there's also because I'm autistic I assumed a lot of the time that like other people go through the same things I do without kind of questioning it so one of the great examples of that is that I've got no sense of smell which didn't become prevalent until I was a teenager because before that I just assumed everyone else was the same as me mm-hmm. um, and it was only when we kind of started questioning things that stuff like that came about but um, regarding like pain levels and digestive system and all that kind of stuff I just didn't really know that there was anything different until it became much more of a problem so yeah and it's so hard like you say and as a kid like it's it's hard enough to kind of describe what's going on and then to also translate that or to figure out how to compare that to other people's experiences like yeah definitely and I think it's really easy as well to like people dismiss kids a lot they go like oh they're complaining because they're bored or you know they're they're complaining because they're lazy and it's like no I um always hated PE like like physical education with an absolute vengeance and um I think I was put down to being quite difficult and lazy and one of the things I really hated was getting changed in front of people so that was like a big mm-hmm. thing that got focused on whereas it actually I was having kind of like asthma kind of attacks in the background without anyone knowing and that only became like obvious when I was an adult as well so 
Yeah. Yeah, lots lots of little things going on, yeah. Yeah, the the in retrospect stuff can be so interesting. And also, I think like I want to keep going, but I think it's also really interesting cuz you mentioned these physical symptoms kind of being attributed to or explained by the autism diagnosis. And Yeah. It's so I, I don't know yet, although now I'm really curious how often that happens with autism specifically. But I know there's so many diagnoses that people have that are really can have so many different present presentations where this happens that it's like, oh, you have pain. We already diagnosed you with something, so we won't explore it further. Or like, oh, you have yeah. digestive problems. We already diagnosed you with something, so we won't explain it further. Exactly. I think with autism, it's such a huge thing as well, because we know that, like, I think it, I can't remember the exact number, but there's a massive proportion of people with autism have digestive issues, um, which is, like, just accepted. Like, there's no actual kind of reason for it. There's no understanding of it. It's just, oh, you're autistic, you have digestive issues, but there's no link whatsoever. Right. Um, whereas we also know anecdotally that massive amount of people with autism are hypermobile um, and that's not something that's looked into either and then you go like well how many of these people with digestive problems and hypermobility actually have EDS which is often linked to autism yeah and no one's putting the picture together at all which I find really surprising right yeah like is this actually a really common comorbidity that is getting kind of ignored that's yeah exactly like actually yeah. the digestive problems might be something completely different but yeah. it's not it's just accepted even though there's no scientific explanation for it yeah it's really weird yeah right what a fun mystery um okay so so then when did you start to, either you start to look into things or start to take take things kind of more seriously or realize that it might be there might be more going on um about a year and a, a year and a half ago now it was october 2018 uh, oh no, October 2017, sorry, mm-hmm. um, I started being sick and I could not stop being sick. Um, could keep very little down, I was probably eating about half the amount of food that I was before and I started losing weight really quickly so I went to the doctor. But three months before that I'd started following someone on Instagram who had a child with autism who also had EDS and then when I started being sick it was like something in me clicked and I went hang on and I started looking into EDS more and realized like I had this horrific few months where every single day there was another symptom or another thing of my body or something else that was um, linked to the EDS that was caused by it and this kind of realization that this is what's going on and actually like this is huge. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like seeing your body fall off a cliff and not being able to do anything about it because all the all these kind of puzzle pieces were coming together. So I went to the uh, my primary doctor, my GP, and um, he I insisted that I get referred to rheumatology and something that people don't necessarily know. I'm sure like not everyone works like this, but most GPs in the UK, if you absolutely insist on a diagnosis they will put it forward and if not you can complain. So I sat there and I was like, I need to be sent to a rheumatologist and he referred me, didn't know what EDS was, had to Google it in front of me. Sure. I told him about the Baton scale and he didn't know what that was and then said I wasn't hypermobile because I can't put my hand like that backwards onto my wrist. Like the thumb was it's supposed to be yeah, it was the thumb one but backwards. Yeah. I couldn't put my thumb backwards and I was like, well, 
no, I can't. Like, a few people can do that, but that's very rare. Yeah, and so, hypermobility, like, I know people talk about this about the bait and scale, but, like, hypermobility isn't only those nine things. Some people I know, have it. That's what, it's bizarre, isn't yeah. it? Like, some of the most hypermobile joints aren't included on the bait and scale at all. Um, but even rheumatologists only go by that, mm-hmm. uh, which I find really bizarre. But, yeah, so we... I got the referral at his kind of chagrin. I saw, I later saw the private letter that he sent to the rheumatologist because it was on her screen when I went to the appointment. And at the very bottom, it says, it goes, she has no sign of hypermobility, da 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 da, insisted that I refer her. And the very last, in its own paragraph sentence, goes, she also has mental health issues. And I was like, really, oh. really bad, isn't it? It's terrible. Um, oh. And the rheumatologist sent this beautiful letter back to him saying, thank you for referring this lady. She's severely hypermobile and everything like that. But because I'd seen the original letter, I knew how loaded all those comments were. Um, But I never saw him again, and everyone else has been really great. I've actually been really lucky because I know some people with EDS have awful, like, problems being kind of discredited and stuff. But I went straight from rheumatology to genetics. Um, as I was walking out the door of the rheumatologist's office, she went, oh, I might as well refer you to genetics as well because of one of the things that you ticked here. And I was like, okay. So that was like literally the last 30 seconds of that appointment I got through. Went to genetics and was verbally diagnosed with EDS on the spot um, and did all the genetic testing. And um, after a year and a bit, this last January, I got the formal diagnosis of um, HEDS. But in that time, my body completely fell apart because the amount of weight that I lost destroyed everything that was holding my joints together because I lost so much muscle. Mm. Um, And they leave you and leave you. I got to the point where I could not drink water, and that was when I was admitted to hospital um, because of waiting lists and letters not going through and everything like that. Um, I lost uh, 20% of my body weight, which is really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, and as soon as I got taken under GI, they were like, okay, within weeks I was in hospital, whereas I had taken eight months to get to that point. So it was, yeah, really crazy journey. But Yeah, and it's so strange how things can happen so slowly and then so quickly, kind of. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, yeah. Like, um, I found also, you know, within a few weeks I had my first NJ tube, and then... I was with that for two months. Then I was kind of thought like, oh, you don't need it anymore. So in August, um, at the end of August, took it out. And I was eating okay and kind of gained quite a bit of the weight back and was doing all right and sort of stable. And then in January, I started being sick again. And And that was really... Yeah. I was just going to say, and so in addition to the feeding tube, were there other interventions to try to improve what was going on? Like what kind of, why do you think that at that time it was even possible to get back to eating? Like what changed? Um, Well, the explanation that was given at the time was that sometimes the body gets into like this cycle of malnutrition and dehydration. And with the like nourishment I was on, um, 2,000 milliliters of fluid a day and half of that was feed so I was on you know everything I got was from that which built my body back up and then my body kind of got out of that cycle and got back to eating and that was the explanation that I was given until I started being sick again in January okay um and then kind of we we tried to treat it then with medication and I was on 
five new medications most of them kind of over-the-counter stuff but in addition to everything else I'm on it was quite a like massive um, massive amount of pills to be taking and all of it made other parts of my body go wrong mm-hmm. um, and one of them I was wildly allergic to as well so that was helpful um, and after a kind of week and a half of that and establishing that that just wasn't working at all um, they were resigned to the fact that I would have to have another tube. I lost another fifteen pounds in eight weeks. Yeah. Um, went way down. Um, and by the time I was admitted to hospital, I wasn't really tolerating anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and what just to get medical for a second? Um, and so what was like the digestive stuff? Is it a co- is it a combination of everything? Just because there's so many different ways, I know that people can struggle with that. It's like there can be pain and cramping. There can be, you know, like slow digestion, like with gastroparesis, or there can be, you know, nausea. There can be kind of what family of stuff was that in for you? Oh, I get it across the board. Um, <laughs> yeah, the. Um... The slow digestion is a huge thing for me, but I think it's more a problem in my bowels rather than my stomach. Um, My gastric doctor has said that he thinks there's a certain level of gastroparesis going on, but it's not diagnosable. Um, I'm not diagnosed with gastroparesis, um, but he said I have had an emptying test where you have to eat radioactive eggs for me, it was, or radioactive porridge as well, really weird stuff. and I had that, and that came back normal, but he said if we did seven of those, probably three of them would be abnormal, and it right. just depends on the day, right. um, because it fluctuates, and because it's quite mild in me, um, it does fluctuate kind of quite wildly, which accounts for the fact that some days I can't eat a thing without being sick, and other days I can you know, have half of the amount of food that I should have, and then supplement it with feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but... There, there is no explanation. I've had every single, uh, well, not every single, but I've had probably like seven or eight different tests just on my digestive system, ranging from an MRI to, you know, a test to see what bacteria is going on in my bowels, like all sorts of different things. Right. And all of it's come back normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the general consensus is that it's because everything's too stretchy. And yeah. Where everything's too stretchy, it just doesn't work properly. Yeah. Yeah, because it can just cause all kinds of stuff. And I know with EBS, research is so low that all of the different places it could have an impact, we probably can't even imagine yet. Yeah, exactly. I don't have a single organ system that isn't affected as well, so that's brilliant. But yeah, you get some really amazing phrases, like the one that they're running with at the moment is erratic bowels. (laughs) That's great, like that really sums it up. Um, But yeah, there's there's so much going on that you kind of go in and you go, well, I'll take your pick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that was, you said January and you got a tube placed again. And it sounds yeah, I got like... two placed again in March, yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, right, so January was the, you were eating and supplementing. That's when it started, right. yeah, and then it all just fell apart again. Yeah, yeah, and I can only imagine that in addition to all of the physical stuff, like, eating is so fraught with health anyway that once you start to have problems with eating, it's like the anticipation around it can make it harder, and that, like, the worry around food and weight loss and am I doing the right thing in addition to yeah. the actual physical discomfort. 
and yeah, and the social and like mental implications of it are like crazy as well. Because like, so in my family, food is huge. Food is the kind of socialization thing. It's the comfort thing and everything, and not in a really unhealthy way. Uh, I think most people in my family have quite a good relationship with food, but it our kind of social lives in my family are built around it, um, which means that when we go out you know everyone's eating or you know what I always used to do with my mum was go and get coffee and cake mm -hmm. and stuff like that and I can still drink coffee most days I don't have caffeinated coffee and I can't have dairy milk and all these kind of things right but um I can still do things like that but like when I go to theirs for dinner it's like the most uncomfortable situation ever whereas like socially the weight is huge and you know, I got I got people when I was at my absolute worst last year, and I my hair like half of my hair had fallen out, and I looked grey, and my skin was awful. I had people coming up to me and going, "You look amazing. What have you done? How did you lose the weight?" And I was like, "No, you, like it's crazy. It's the only thing that people see." And then I also get people going like, "Well, don't gain too much weight back," and you're like. It's crazy, like, how much people feel that they can just comment on your body and, like... Yeah, and, like, project their values onto your body. Yeah, Where it's completely. like, I didn't want to lose this weight. It does not feel good. You telling me it's good is very confusing. Yeah, really confusing, yeah, because you get this kind of affirmation about it, and then you kind of feel like, oh, like, you get worried about gaining weight because of that, but then you know that, like, losing weight also means that you're ill and it, it's a massive signal of your illness and yeah. how like bad your body's getting and I know that every time I lose weight I lose more muscle and I have more joint problems and stuff like that so there's so many different things at play yeah. but socially it's a really bizarre experience yeah 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 now ugh. I am remembering about because I haven't had that kind of an issue I did had to I like went on a very specialized diet at one point for health reasons and mm -hmm. it I didn't. I had never heard of a ketogenic at this a ketogenic diet at this time, okay. but it definitely was ketogenic, and I lost a lot of weight very quickly. And it was like, yeah, people just comment on it all the time, and you're like, yeah, I don't. Thanks is the socially Why appropriate that, answer, yeah. but it is not how it's I feel. Bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Also, because you don't want to then get into a conversation with them about how ill you are, but you also feel like you can't leave them going like, wow, they've done something amazing. Yeah. And how people going like, how did you lose it? And I was like, I'm ill. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't eat. Like, like trust me, yeah. you do not want to try this diet. Exactly. Yeah. And now like I've got a feeding tube. It's kind of like changes it completely again. And mm -hmm. like the social factors of that are really different and yeah 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 how is that yeah, adjustment really partly it's like a, obviously it's a physical representation of what you're experiencing plus feeding is different yeah absolutely like, I think it's um it's quite you feel quite naked because before I could choose who I told that I was ill and um not everyone kind of had to know and you know sometimes I have like braces on my knees or something like that but then a lot of people who exercise a lot do have that because they've had sporting injuries and then it's kind of seen as like oh they're really sporty <laughs> and that kind of thing whereas like a feeding tube is a feeding tube like there's no there's no way out of that yeah um but the people I find the worst are adults like children will look and they will stare for a little bit assess it take it in and then move on mm -hmm. and that might be like five seconds yeah you know and then if children really are like 
looking or like they want to ask about something or whatever then that's totally fine and I think it's really good for kids to kind of be around more things like that mm-hmm. because it becomes more um something that they can understand a bit more yeah whereas like there are some adults that just can't help themselves and literally cannot look away yeah and like I've, had, I've been in situations like I was at I was standing on a train platform waiting for a train and there was a guy that would look at me for like five seconds straight and then look away and then immediately look back at me and just couldn't help himself and I was like what are you doing so I literally like just walked off and moved somewhere else but yeah you only get things like that from adults right children are like so much better at just dealing with it yeah 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 and I have experienced that with like using a mobility aid we're like oh I'm using a cane right now and if a kid asks about a cane they're usually just like genuinely curious and will ask really directly versus even just like adults will ask ask about it differently like come up and be like strangers did you get in an accident it's like, I don't see how that's any of your business. It's really different for a kid to just be like, how come you have that stick in your hand? Or like, how come you have a tube yeah. tucked behind your ear compared to like, I don't I don't know, like the tone or the trying to make sense of it or the something just feels different. Get it together, Alex. Yeah, yeah, I find like, because like, I used crutches for a while um, and that is so different because people suddenly give you the help you need Mm. and they're like they'll let you get on the bus first or like the bus driver will wait for you to sit down before he goes off and like you know if you need a seat somewhere someone will like get up and give you one and this is help that you've been needing for months and months before that happens and then you finally get to a point that you have to have crutches and you're like where was this before because now I can stand for a little bit longer because I've got crutches you know and it's this kind of um big kind of paradox in a way um, but crutches were a lot easier because people can relate to them so much better mm-hmm. and it's not such a strange thing. So it's like, and you know, you kind of get other people with crutches waiting at the bus stop as well. And they'd be like, oh, you get on first. You've got two. I've only got one and stuff <laughs> like that. And it's just like not um, something that people feel afraid of. I think. Yeah. Crutches you know, specifically. I think like you said about braces is like crutches specifically people use for so many different reasons mm-hmm. that it, it can be like more normalized or less intimidating you also might yeah. have a sports injury or whatever yeah exactly yeah and like um I think because of that the way people ask is a lot calmer whereas like when you've got something a little bit more invasive or a little bit more unusual they're like um they feel weird and yeah. that makes you feel weird and yeah. then it just kind of bounces back and forth between you and that that's always a bit of a problem but it's also how how you explain that i've come up with loads of different like lines for how i explain things to different people depending on like the context and stuff and mm-hmm. yeah navigating Ill- illness socially is like a huge minefield for sure yeah yeah definitely and like you say yeah preparing some stuff and figuring out what you're comfortable saying and like the tone of the conversation and if you care about educating that person um and so it sounds like the more the more severe stuff is pretty recent even though you can look back and see that it's been kind of going on for quite a while so how has that impacted other corners of your life like were you working or what were you up to before and what are you up to now um so I've been on sick leave for years um which was initially because of like mental health reasons and then became something that was like coming up for review and then I got really ill again but I was doing um, a master's degree 
because um, I, I get as a kind of special um, type of benefit in the UK that like you can study while you're on sick leave and you're, it's fine. Um, so I was doing a master's degree and that's when everything started was the month that I started my master's degree. So there was probably like a degree of stress activating things and stuff, but mm -hmm. equally might just been a complete coincidence. Um, and then I did a full-time master's degree the entire like first year of me being severely ill. I wrote my dissertation from my hospital bed. And that sounds like fun. It was hardcore, yeah. yeah. Um, then I took six months off with the idea of like, oh, I'll, I'll get things kind of sorted a bit right. and then have a bit more of a game plan and then I'll go back. And Because um, I, I finished my master's degree, got it, and that was all kind of sitting there. Um, now, the last month, I started my PhD, and nothing's sorted. Everything's falling apart. We're exactly the same place we were last year, but we just carry on anyway. So yeah. it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, it feels good to have something to do. Mm. You know, I think, because one of the things that comes up so much when I'm talking to people, like, on the one hand, there's like, it's really messed up that it can feel like, work is a part of your value and you need to do that and mm. like fuck capitalism but on the other hand like one of the things that can be so hard about being sick is when you have trouble moving or you have trouble thinking or you have trouble eating like yeah you want something to do that is important to you yeah exactly um i i used to be a teaching assistant for disabled children that was my main job and i always intended to go back to that while i was doing my phd to like fund it and also have that kind of side of my life that was something I loved doing. Yeah, so I, I always intended to go back to doing that work. Um, and that was something that I loved doing. And I kind of, the job satisfaction of that is massive and very immediate because, like, you teach a child who kind of can't speak. Like, I remember the first time I had a conversation with a child who couldn't speak but was learning to use, um, like, a PEX communication system with, like, visual pictures. And I had his first ever conversation with him. Mm -hmm. And that kind of expression of like just this kind of um, reciprocal relationship between the two of you where you're like really working really hard for him, but he's also really working hard for himself as well mm -hmm. is amazing. Um, and I always kind of wanted to go back to that. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it anymore because I can't physically do it. Um, one of the massive parts of that was restraining people mm -hmm. um, because when you know, the more kind of ambulatory um, kids, or I worked with kids who were like really, really um, troubled and had just gotten out of prison and stuff like that. And obviously you need to be able to kind of keep everyone safe. And um, I just wouldn't physically be able to do it anymore. So I can't put yeah. them in a position where I can't keep them safe. Right. And that's really hard. It's hard on kind of multiple levels because that was something that I kind of valued about myself. It wasn't really about the work that I was doing. It was more just kind of doing something for someone else. and being in a like place of responsibility for like other people's children was always like something that kind of honored quite a lot so the fact that I can't do that is really hard but I think equally like I always wanted to go down this path anyway my intention was always to go and get a PhD and do that and through this I kind of found ways that I can do I can make more of a difference by working in the background I do a lot of research and so um, like my research career kind of has two strands where I'm I'm an English Lit PhD but I also do a lot of autism research mm -hmm. 
and I'm quite like involved in different charities and that and stuff. So it's you know you find other ways that you can make a difference and yeah, I I kind of agree with the uh, like the output problem that like you know your your worth is based on what you're putting out there and that doesn't really work for no. most people in society I think but it also doesn't make right. people happy right like even people who are completely able-bodied like totally. the fact that they only get reward when they work really hard rather than when they kind of spend time with family or like you know have a lazy day and stuff like that like that shouldn't be something that you feel guilty about mm-hmm. that should be the core of your life and then if you know you're doing something that you enjoy or that makes you feel kind of um feel kind of like you've achieved something then that's really great as well but that shouldn't be kind of something that society imposes on you that should come from yourself so or like at the level of survival that it is right now of like yeah exactly like the fact that like if you don't work like my financial situation depends on me and my son being ill Mm -hmm. because if we aren't a high enough degree of disabled we don't get any money anymore and right. that's really messed up like yeah. the fact that I'm kind of going like well I need I need a report from that doctor's appointment because they're gonna ask for it later you know yeah. and that kind of thing is is really a really weird position to be in for sure yeah yeah, yeah. and especially I think ac- across the board because it works a little bit differently in every country that has like a disability safety net but I think kind of universally it's like either you're so disabled or so sick that you can't do anything and then you'll get like maybe the minimum amount to survive in a lot of places and but as soon as you get to like a place where maybe you can work sometimes and with chronic illness this is so common right where you're like sometimes my body works sometimes my brain works sometimes I have a week or a month or even years where I could totally put energy into doing something that someone will pay me for. But as soon as you lose your benefits, like it might only be a week. You can't afford to lose your benefits because exactly, you don't know. Yeah. yeah. And then I think you get to the situation where people are afraid to like look too able. They're like, I can't see have people seeing me or like, what if the wrong people see me having a really good day? Yeah. Like, you know, what would happen then but I get that with medical tests all the time I I have a problem I wait three months to see a specialist or more and then I have to wait another three months for the test that they order and by that time I'm out of the flare Mm -hmm. but three four months later I'm back in it right and I don't have any tests that show anything because they're only done in that one little window where everything's all right yeah and yeah it's just it kind of gets really frustrating after a while because you're like yeah. sometimes things have to be a bit more immediate but they can't be because yeah. of the way the systems work and yeah 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 and just because of the way that bodies work like yeah you know it's it's like should, what should I do should I go to the ER as soon as this is happening even if it's not an emergency by itself but I just need it documented like yeah yeah exactly yeah bizarre but then like when I was in hospital I had a tachycardic episode where I get like my heart rate just shoots up sometimes and I have quite low blood pressure anyway um and no one knows why yet um and I had one of those episodes in hospital and I was like oh fuck my god I'm, I'm having it here finally and like people came in they did an ECG and everything and then they didn't have paper for the ECG to print it oh and by god. the time they found the paper it was done and then they took 
my glucose levels, like my blood sugar levels, um, half an hour after putting up the glucose fluids. So it's just like the whole thing was completely just a mess. backwards, yeah. and yeah, and then that didn't get documented properly. Yeah, and you're kind of like you can't win, like yeah. no matter what, you can't win with it. But yeah. Yeah, and especially when you need it, like you say, like when you mm. need all this documentation for something else, and so for your yeah. like support, whatever that looks like, it's like, oh my god, this is also work, just figuring it out, yeah, and meeting the geography like and stuff. And the amount of paperwork that it takes to be disabled is absolutely massive. Like, my son, I'm a full-time carer for my son, as well as everything going on for myself, and we've got pretty much, like, but, well, he's not as severe as I am, but we've got very similar issues. And, um, yeah, the amount of paperwork I do between the two of us, the amount of admin and everything like that is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And another thing about all the paperwork is, like, if your brain gets foggy, it is so hard to do that stuff right. And I'm sure it must, since I think everyone I talk to gets brain fog. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, like, you kind of go, like, you send it off and then you go, oh, I didn't write that down. And then it comes back to bite you in the ass later because they go, well, why didn't you write that down? And you're like, because I couldn't remember it on the day. Because there's too much to remember. Like, um, But we also have a really bad system here where if you don't fill it out with the right, you have to hit keywords. And also the more actual physical aids that you use, the more points you get. Um, so like if you use like something specific to communicate, that would be more important than if someone kind of has trouble talking but doesn't use anything mm-hmm. you know that that wouldn't kind of get the same amount of points but it might be the same issue right um and you know sort of like if someone walked with a limp versus if they walked with a walking stick right <laughs> they, those kind of things is really odd but um you have to hit certain keywords in the um application forms here and if you don't hit them you get denied straight away and it's like then you have to go through appeal and tribunal and go to court with them everything which I had to do with my son um, and you kind of go like what's the point because I won anyway and we they had to pay us all the money that they would owed us for that time so we got a massive back payment of money that we needed back then but didn't need so much now Right. and they didn't get anything out of it and we like had massive amounts of stress put on us and everything and it's just the same outcome right. because they're just box ticking all the time and yeah. that that's a really weird really weird kind of process to go through but i see like innumerable people going through that every day on all the different kind of support groups i'm in and everything like that it's every single day it's someone else and yeah i feel like i see that a lot too and the appeals too like mm, you say it's yeah it's about that it's like what do i do now as if the system, which it probably is, as if the system is designed to force people to drop out. Like, they're just waiting yeah, to see how absolutely. many people won't be able to appeal. That's what it is. Like, we've because there's three stages here. There's the initial application form, which massive amounts of them get denied. Then there's mandatory reconsideration, which is where you kind of phone up and you go, I, I don't agree with it because of this. Um, you need to review it. And then they'll, that gets denied. I've never, I'm sure, like, one percent of them get through or something like that but like almost no one gets it turned over at that point so that's just another like hurdle that they're going like well they'll do the mandatory reconsideration if that comes back negative a certain amount of people will drop out at that point Mm -hmm. and then you go to court but going to court is like 
you have to produce reams of documents for them, review reams of stuff that they're giving you. And I'm sitting here with a master's degree going, this is why I'm capable of doing it. But what about people who haven't been able to get to that point because they, you know, they have health issues or they just didn't want to or, you know, people who aren't, I'm very like um, literate because that's like always been my thing. But what if people aren't, you know, what if they're yeah. better at maths than English or whatever? Yeah. Or then... just have language barriers. Like there's yeah, so many exactly. different ways that that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And like that also comes into like the minorities and stuff like that. Like people who kind of English is their second language or, you know, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff is like everyone in that group is at such a massive disadvantage but those are the people that those benefits are there for right and it, yeah. yeah it's totally bizarre yeah yeah the gatekeeping just all of it everything about it mm. is a mess and I'm sure when you also are a parent and being a parent when you're chronically ill is like yeah, so much like, right I feel like I'm doing like four or five full-time jobs and yeah. being ill is one of them yeah <laughs> like, oh yeah yeah just keeping track of everything and trying everything mm. um and so then I was also wondering because you you got the EDS diagnosis mm -hmm. and then kind of at the same time as all of this digestion stuff is happening which yeah. related probably related but yeah on top of that or alongside that is there any like what does EDS care look like for you because I know this is a tough one <laughs> Yeah, so I've got, um, I finally hit a physio that knows what she's doing, which mm. is amazing because I, I had a physio before that was really, really questionable and then another one that was kind of much lower level. So we're looking good there. Um, I've got like physio exercises that I have to do every day um, and then I'm also supposed to be starting like going to a local pool for hydro um, once or twice a week. Um, so that's kind of like the physio side of it. I've got... Um, massive amount I've probably got a splint for every part of the body um that um I will wear like if I dislocate something and I might need to like brace my wrist because I've pulled it out of socket and it needs to like rest for a day or two then I'll wear them for that but I can't like I try not to wear them all the time because obviously then like you lose muscle and then the joint gets worse um I have um obviously I've got all the feeds and everything that goes on with that then I've got like medication every day to take and coordinate all of that um, and then obviously with all of that you know you've got to go back and forth to the doctor and the pharmacy and you know organize like deliveries for the feeds like the amount of boxes I get every month because they deliver it monthly mm. all the feeding supplies and it's like a massive lot. amount does of it stuff. need to be refrigerated um, no no okay no, that at least um, would be easier because yeah, that would, have, I like, would need another fridge. Yeah, yeah. like when people have um, self infusions and stuff that they have to, mm. or even just shake sometimes that they have to refrigerate. You're like, that's your whole yeah, fridge. Yeah, there's there's loads of different kinds of formula, but there's one that's very standard here, um, and they just supply all all of the feeding tube stuff. The feeding tubes are made by them and everything, so it just all comes from one company, which is quite nice as well. Mm. Um, but I have to like coordinate all of that. Um, I have. I think I'm under it's between 10 and 13 different specialist departments last time I counted um, various different organ systems and so there are weeks where I have a medical appointment every single week every single day of the week um, yeah. I get weekends off because that's when the hospital doesn't work but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
going back and forth. I don't drive at all, so that's like a big bus trip every time. And yeah, that that in itself gets quite intense as well because I think you kind of have to build up to each appointment and you go like, am I going to remember what I want to say? Like, what's going to happen? How are they going to react? Are they going to dismiss me or like further tests? And what are they going to be? And all these kind of questions going on in your head. And if you're doing that every day of the week, then that's quite intense. It's um, a lot to keep track of. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then it's all, it's just like maintaining your body all the time. Like kind of, you know, every so often like I have to put a joint back in place or, you know, I'll be walking along and my hip's not in but I can't get it in so I need to just deal with that or go home kind of thing. And all these kind of, you're constantly asking, having to do like little checks of like head to toe, is my body okay? Yeah. You know, and going like because the problems fluctuate like sometimes it'll be like acid reflux is the biggest problem for me or it'll be like hip pain or you know all these different things and trying to deal with that um and then I also have like really sporadic allergies and so every so often there's like something new that I'm allergic to and mm. I have to kind of figure that out so yeah it's just it's just like all of the brain space that it takes yeah right? exactly yeah. yeah and I think you know I I can sit here, I know that's not all of it, but that's everything yeah. I can kind of remember at the moment, and you kind of go, like, every time you turn, I, I, yeah, I keep saying this, like, that every time you turn around, something else goes wrong. Yeah. You know, like, you, you sort something else turn, and it's sent something else flying, and you kind of go, like... Like, what now? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think another thing, like, if, without the larger context of a conversation like this, if somebody was just, like tell me about all the ways your illness affects your life. That would be such a hard list to make because you're like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I bet I don't think about half of the stuff that I do every day to like protect my body or care for my body yeah, that other people exactly. don't think about. It's just built it's in at this like, point. Yeah, it's like little things like rationing the amount of times you walk from the kitchen to the living room because it hurts and yeah. stuff like that is just like ridiculous, isn't it? Um, all these kind of things that you took like – that I feel like I took for granted before I got so ill, you know, mm-hmm. that like, you know, just not constantly being in severe pain yeah. and not being able to take any pain medication because all pain medication is contraindicated for something else, you know, and yeah, the only thing I can take is paracetamol mm-hmm. and in the hospital they give it to me through IV and it's like glorious because it actually does something. Yeah, <laughs> well, like, when you have digestive yeah, problems... It's a whole other level of, like, will yeah. this medication even enter my system? I know. Like, no one actually knows what my medication's doing or not because yeah. I'm taking all of it orally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, like, it might be doing something. It might be, like, doing a lot less than it should do. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that you get with EDS is that we, I don't know if it's, like, we metabolize it differently or something, but medications can react really differently in us. So there's some that I need to take a massive dose of to have any effect. And there's others that, like, the tiniest little bit will send me flying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. It's impossible to say. Um, and you mentioned support groups. Do you do you go to any real-life support groups? I don't know why I said real-life. I mean in person. <laughs> In-person yeah. support groups versus do you, do you um, spend much time online in support group stuff? So I, I can't go to any, um, like, real support groups because I can't they're all in the evening Mm. and I've got a child that I can't leave in the evening because he's autistic so it just doesn't work yeah um 
by yeah i used to go to some for like autism parents during the day because they they're quite often like while the kids are at school yeah kind of meet up um but again it was kind of logistics and when i started my master's degree i kind of couldn't do any of that anymore because i had classes actually the thing that knocked it out completely was that every friday morning i had a medical appointment for a while and so i just can go and yeah you just fall out of touch but um i have i follow um a few different support groups for like different things um one of them's for eds and the other ones are all to do with parenting on facebook and i find like the ones that to do with parenting a little bit different because i work in a charity locally so i kind of i'm there as a mum but i'm also there as someone who can like is placed to give advice or like network and stuff like that so that's a little bit different um i think it helps you get a little bit less emotionally involved as well because otherwise you can really take the weight on that everyone else is doing and that's the the eds one i don't go on unless i've got a question now because mm-hmm. I would spend like every day I'd be scrolling through it going like, and then I'd find problems that people are having and be going like that's exactly what I've got going on and then I kind of feel like I had to go on this like hunt to figure out what that was and stuff um but it just wasn't healthy because like it was dragging me down mentally yeah yeah because I've got enough to focus on without constantly being reminded of it every time I open my phone yeah and um yeah so I did I think initially it was there was this big thing because like the Instagram um, chronic illness community is obviously really huge as well but also kind of fraught with issues mm-hmm. and very early on I was very like I followed a lot of people on there and then also had like the Facebook group and I think a lot of it was kind of discovering the different things going on in my body and what was EDS and what was autism and what was just my body yeah you know and separating all of that out and it almost becomes like part of your research thing because there is so little research done on EDS that you can't just yeah. rely on like an internet site because I think the um, the like official NHS one doesn't even have much about it at all you know and yeah, yeah the, the general thing is just like this is EDS not much is known about it it can cause a multiple problems and it's like okay great but like once that kind of initial need to research and find out and you know sort everything out um kind of ended there it was just like really emotionally heavy and i think also kind of like there was this big there's obviously these big kind of almost like social politics things going on on instagram and some of it is very well founded but i think all of it is very unhealthy as well and um I'm very careful who I follow that I only follow people who are kind of there to boost each other up Mm -hmm. and that's a big thing for me but um, I'm a lot less involved in it than I used to be and I did delete everything that I had up and kind of re re like assessed how I kind of engaged with that and then the Facebook one I really just only go on if I have a question Um, because it's just too difficult otherwise you take on like everyone else's weight as well as your own and yeah 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 they can get you have to focus on something else sometimes don't you yeah yeah, and I feel like, especially because I've now talked to more people about this kind of stuff, it's like at the beginning, whenever the beginning is for everyone, it's like at the beginning, you just want to know that you're not alone. And so you go out looking for these groups yeah. and these accounts, and you're like, oh, thank God. Like, mm. someone else who, or like you say, you saw stuff, and you're like, oh, that's what my body is doing. And at the beginning, mm. that feels like really 
affirming kind of or validating yeah 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 definitely especially when you kind of everything's up in the air like medically like I didn't have a diagnosis yet Mm -hmm. but I was very very lucky like you see you know there's literally a campaign going to like how many years it takes people to get an EDS diagnosis and from the minute I went to get that referral from the rheumatologist to the minute I had a physical diagnosis in my hand was a year and three months yeah which is insanely low yeah Yeah. um admittedly that was after I'd technically had EDS for 26 years but right the actual medical like thing was super fast whereas like I know people who went to the same hospital I go to who had to fight years to even be assessed yeah um and people who went to that hospital were never got assessed never got a diagnosis and you're kind of like I think I just like struck gold but it was also another one of those things where I kind of knew what keywords to hit Mm -hmm. and what to ask and what to insist on and what I could and couldn't because I've been in the medical system since I was eight with autism. Um, So yeah, that was kind of its own thing but I think the way you identify with illness and becoming ill like first you have to find a way to incorporate it into your identity because you don't have a choice because it is such a massive part of your life, you know, um, and that that's a really big deal. Um, I Actually, my master's um, thesis was about how people incorporate a diagnosis of autism into their identity and how, like, language affects that. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm really, really interested in, but I found, I find, like, that's why you kind of dive into the chronic illness community at first because you have to surround yourself in it to figure out where you are in it. Mm-hmm. And where you are, where you are in your body, and how you feel about it all, and you kind of look at all these different kind of people's perspectives on their illness, and go like, which one do I identify with? What's useful to me? Yeah. Um, yeah. And when that initial kind of phase wears off, you sort of start to look at it a little bit more, um, kind of big picture type thing, and look at the community a little bit more critically. And then I think like some people don't do that, and that's fine, and some people do need it, and that's okay as well, but I think you, everyone has to find their own kind of, um, their own basis with it, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the whole identity thing for me was really weird, because I went through an autism diagnosis when I was 14, obviously, and um, that process was so different to the EDS process mm. and the, the di- being diagnosed with those two things felt so different mm-hmm. because I waited six years to be assessed for autism and the only reason I got it after six years was because my parents went private mm. and then I got the diagnosis on the day and wow, everyone went home and the only reason that happened was because my mum was studying psychology at the time, read in a book about autism and went, hang on. And this was something that we found buried in my notes um, years before a, med- uh, a, psych- a psychiatry student, I think she was, um, said that I should be assessed and that there were kind of social um, issues that should be looked at in more detail. And that was when I was eight. And, and they so didn't do anything. Nobody followed up on that until, wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so when I was 14 and I got it and we'd kind of been going through so much and I would dropped out of school, I dropped out of school by that point and everything. It was, um, yeah, that was kind of just a massive relief. And it was like, okay, here, here's what it is. You know, this is what's been going on and you are not different. You're just autistic and that's okay. And my parents also framed it really well. My mom kind of taught me about it and bought me books about it because I'm, I'm a reader and that's how I understand life and Mm -hmm. um, it was 
I think for our whole family it was a bit of relief so it was incorporated into our family really well mm-hmm. um, which also might have been affected by going private because of the type of language and treatment like that the, you get when you go private like was I was good. diagnosed in like on a really sunny day in these lovely rooms that were in converted horse stables in the countryside <laughs> and it's quite different to your kind of grey NHS like waiting room type situation yeah um Whereas with the EDS, it was an uncovering of everything that was wrong and mm-hmm. kind of a really like a process of discovery of every suffering that I was going through and every day or every few weeks, like I would wake up and another part of my body had fallen apart. Right. And so it was a big sense of loss. And mm-hmm. I think I've been through the grief cycle quite a few times yeah. over the past year and a half. And that's so, so different. But it also changes the way you're kind of identified with your illness and mm-hmm. you have to incorporate it into your identity. But how do you do that when it's associated with loss rather than relief, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you like make sense of it if you feel both in some ways? Because I think. Yeah. Like for some people. And I think for me. Yeah. I'd say for me, it was like when things start kind of start stopped working with my body there's so much second guessing of like, is this in my head? Am I just like, is this a mental, just a mental health problem that I'm treating like it's physical or am I exaggerating or am I lazy or am I all of these things? And so there is some relief when you're like, no, it's not. And also my life is going to be, I need to live my life really differently. Like both things are happening at the same time. And that's really hard to, make sense of or it was for me yeah definitely and I think um it's also kind of this yeah it's this really weird kind of feeling of going like having permission to say this isn't in my head you know like I I've been very lucky to have had very few encounters with doctors who kind of dismissed me Mm -hmm. um which is incredibly lucky and I'm I'm aware of that very grateful of it um, but it also has given me like just even having the diagnosis on paper yeah. and I kind of the day I received that I looked at it it's all good the day <laughs> I received that I looked at it and I cried um, a lot just out of kind of loss because I think up until that moment you go well maybe there's something even though you know there isn't you, there's kind of thing in the back of your head that goes well maybe they'll find something and there'll be a pill I can take or yeah. you know genetic yeah. treatment or you know something that yeah. will make this yeah resolve totally and even though you know that's not true there's still this little tiny spark in the back of your head and then when I got that paper it was like this kind of loss of that spark Mm -hmm. but equally it was the relief of having a piece of paper I could go to people with and go this is happening this is real you know yeah um there is a name for it you know, and mm-hmm. I'm not just being difficult or lazy or any, all those kind of things that people get labelled with. And also, like, what is difficult or lazy? You know, yeah. Like, I'm sure there are people who genuinely are, but I think those like words are kind of given out way too freely. You know, like yeah. people might not be lazy; they might just be tired one day and stuff like that. And permission isn't given to people to be difficult or lazy or different or all those kind of things. Yeah. Um because it doesn't fit in with the machine of life kind of yeah. thing and it's like you're allowed to have a day where you just don't want to get off the couch and that's yeah. okay you know that might be really healthy like yeah yeah, yeah. so it's, it's really weird yeah yeah it's like that thing about how 
well, like I guess the kind of welfare queen stereotype, this idea that there are so many people out there who are just like happily doing nothing for no reason. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't think that's like, a thing. How difficult it is to get welfare benefits. Like, do you really think that there's like the majority of people on them are on them for like their own benefit and their own gain i know there are people like that out there but they're probably like the one percent of you yeah. know all like, the people that actually need it you know? yeah so small and like honestly having now had periods of my life where i spent months at a time only moving between my couch and my bed and like only yeah. watching television mostly with my eyes closed it's boring like yeah no when i was working no part of me was like man i bet my life would be better if i could just lie silently and unmoving on the couch while somebody helps me get to the bathroom like yeah it's not laziness isn't the same as rest or like yeah exactly and i think it's also this kind of because people want to be able to do that for a week Mm -hmm. you know they want to be able to just sit down for a week because they're not allowed to yeah but that's what they look at that that's the lens that they look at that through and that's kind of a societal thing as well isn't it and then they kind of don't realize that after that week they really massively want to get back up again and go back to work yeah you know um also because they just don't take the second yeah exactly they don't take a second to think about like the lens that they look at that through but um I think it's also like I work way harder now than I did when I was healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, I might not be doing a full time job, but I'm exhausted from the minute I get up to the minute I go to bed. And sometimes I'm just crying because I'm so tired. Yeah. And, you know, like it's kind of on a cellular level, like a full time job just to hold my body together. And yeah. people yeah. don't get that at all. They don't understand that, you know, you're not just sitting there kind of lazing around and pampering yourself and stuff like that it's like you know even going to the toilet takes planning sometimes because you're kind of in so much pain you don't want to stand up yeah so yeah or like if you're tachycardic or whatever i definitely Mm, yeah exactly on like potsy nap days it'll be like okay how much longer can i wait until the torture of standing up like it really does come down to that yeah Exactly. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed and like thought about so much over the last year is like how everywhere that you go, you have to stand up to queue. Mm. Like you can't, like the only place you don't have to do that here is um, when you're waiting for your medication. And literally one day I was standing in line and I had crutches at that time and I was standing in line and a guy went, go sit over there and I'll make sure that you go before me. Mm-hmm. And it was just that permission to go and sit down rather than have to stand in line was just like I'll like never forget how grateful I was for that. Yeah. Um, and it's just stuff like that that's really ableist, but it's so incorporated into society. You know, like what about the people that can't stand up to queue? Like it's really odd to kind of go to someone in line and go, "Can you just hold my place because I can't stand up?" Yeah. Like that's a re- weird thing to do. Yeah. So it would take a lot of like social courage to actually do that. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that just go, you know what, I can't cope with doing that every day. Yeah. Because every time you do that, it takes you down a peg. Yeah. Like, it, there's so many things that are just ever so slightly humiliating about it. Yeah. And, like, it, even just the the kind of unpredictable nature of it. So, for me, lately, I have been exercising, which is pretty cool. And I go and I, like, use a recumbent bike. 
So mm-hmm. standing up and exercising is not on the table. But my body has been in a place lately where I can some days use the recumbent bike and like actually exercise. And that's very cool. Yeah. And one day I went from the gym to the dollar store next door to buy something. And my like sitting had been fine but my pots was so bad that i couldn't stand in the line to your point that's what makes me think made me think of it but as at the dollar store it's not like there was anywhere to sit anywhere and so i just crouched yeah. on the floor because i didn't know what else to do so i was like move shuffling along on my spot in line but i i just i was gonna black out if i had stayed standing yeah it's like this is a ridiculous situation and i'm like wearing my gym clothes i literally did come yeah. from the gym next door i present as a healthy person for all of those reasons I'm not, I like don't even know how to start the conversation of like, hey, I know that I'm kind of sweaty from exercise and I seem like I'm probably fine, but actually standing is killing me. Please. I don't know how this could be made easier. Like it's not even, the systems aren't there. Like Like you're saying. Chairs around. Yeah. Places like it should just be normalized to have chairs dotted around like in, like in supermarkets. It's a massive job to get all the way around a supermarket. Like, that's really long. And, you know, there's nowhere to sit. The first time that that came to be a problem for me was actually years and years ago when I was breastfeeding my son. Mm -hmm. And you get halfway around a supermarket with a, like, baby on your own. And this is, like, a, like, achievement unto itself. And then your child needs feeding. And, you know, he was too big at that point for me to stand up feeding him. Um, And, like, in England, like, breastfeeding is much more normalized than in a lot of places in the states so it's not necessarily something that you are like i got more people complimenting me on it than i got people giving me weird looks for mm-hmm. instance but in the supermarket what on earth are you supposed to do i sat down in an aisle and breastfed him until he was ready and then got up and carried on my shopping i couldn't abandon my shopping at that point because yeah. i been doing it for like 45 minutes or half an hour however long it takes yeah. with the baby like where are you gonna and... put your cart <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's like, just put a chair every few aisles, put a few chairs down. Or on the it's cart. It's not a big deal. Like, make yeah, the like, you can sit. I just sat on a cart at Home Depot last week, which was like, a, like, you know, a warehouse store for construction and stuff. And it was like one of the big ones that's for putting wood on because my husband was oh, getting yeah, stuff. Yeah. And I was just like, I'll just be sitting here almost on the ground on this cart because I'm not standing, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, completely. And it, yeah, it's really kind of it's weird how these situations crop up and but like make you realize like it makes you look at the world around you and realize like why is it that there's only braille on the stop button on a bus mm-hmm. nowhere else? Mm-hmm. Like why is that the most important place to have a braille yeah. but you don't have it in shops, you don't have it on like like signs to kind of direct you into town or anywhere? Yeah. Except for the stop button on the bus. Yeah. Like, just like, how did this one, like, it's great that it exists there. And how did it yeah. happen that this is the only thing? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it, it definitely, like, I think being ill and being disabled makes you look at things in a really different way. Um, mm-hmm. And it's weird for me as well, because I've been in every situation because I've obviously been like able-bodied. I've got like kind of developmental disability, but now I'm also really ill. But I've also been the person like doing hydro for kids with disabilities and then three years down the line someone's doing hydro for me yeah and that's really weird yeah um but it kind of gives you an appreciation of like all the different issues that people kind of walk into you know Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and how how much harder it is to anticipate because Braille is a great example, and like ramps are a great example that ramps are helpful mm. and can be helpful to so many different people. Like it's not just wheelchair users; it's anyone who has trouble with steps, but people with strollers, whatever, whatever. Yeah. But you're like, okay, they've got ramps everywhere, but if there's no chairs, like all of the people who are ambulatory who exactly stand yeah. all the time just like all of this different stuff and like the width of aisles as yeah. well like even just like people don't understand how much um room you need width wise to use crutches mm-hmm. because they don't go straight down they go out slightly to the side and then you use that but you kind of go into place you go oh, i can't fit in here so there's no way a wheelchair would get in here you know yeah. and that kind of thing but we also have a massive problem in the UK where a massive amount of the architecture around is Victorian right. because that was like the time of the most productivity. And so there's like old like concrete steps everywhere. There's cobbled, like some streets still cobbled and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. And you kind of go like there's a time to preserve it, but there's also things that need to be done. Yeah. And like, it's yes, it's charming, but is that enough yeah i live um yeah exactly yeah where i live in the states i live in massachusetts and it's like they're obsessed with their colonial history like yeah so um that my town it's like from the 1800s and it's like if you've ever seen the show gilmore girls it feels a lot like the town of star like it's very charming and i think most of the downtown blocks were built in the 1800s so same era and like there's steps to almost every store all of this stuff and you're like oh it's it's one there's going to be a whole bunch of nimbies who are like oh no it's charming we can't fix this problem plus like there isn't really money to do it and so people are going to have to find it i hope at some point Mm -hmm. like there's so many layers to fixing this stuff of changing minds and then actually figuring out how to do it logistically yeah it's it's even like just like when with new builds like yeah. you build a new shop but the doorways aren't wide enough yeah like how does that happen that it gets cleared to the point that like a wheelchair doesn't fit in the front door of a shop yeah we like who cleared that now. yeah exactly and you know um yeah it's really bizarre but like that was one of the things i was nervous about with starting uni because i went for the uni i go to is the perfect uni for me like the my supervisor for my PhD is exactly on the same page he's really really good and everything and so I didn't feel like I could turn it down but it's in the most inaccessible place ever Mm. it's very much the kind of problems that you're talking about I think the place was built the town which is actually the nearest town to where I grew up because I grew up in a little village um, is uh, built in Roman times Mm. and so it's a nightmare yeah um I'm, I'm sure most of it is listed so can't be changed right and like the actual uni is amazing i've gotten to know very well where all the lifts are because it's built on a really steep hill so like everything's layered yeah um but i like you know i was going there and i had to walk up a massive hill to get to the uni from the bus stop because i can't drive because i'm autistic and that's one of the things that my autism stops me doing i know a lot of people are with autism can but i have spatial awareness issues yeah just just not for you um yeah exactly and so there was this like hallelujah moment when my um disabled students like advisor told me that she could get funding for me to get a taxi there Mm. and i literally i get i got funding to get a taxi there and back but what i do is i get a taxi there and then 
I don't have to walk up that massive hill, but I can walk down into town and go get a coffee before I get the bus home. Yeah. And it's this kind of like bizarre thing, but it's literally just like I could get a taxi from the bottom of that hill to the top and I'd be perfectly happy. Right. Like the bus wasn't the problem, but the yeah, location exactly. of the bus yeah. stop was not working. Um, but yeah, it's just these kind of like, yeah, it's these crazy situations that you never anticipate until you're ill. And then when you're ill, you hit like 50 of them every day. Yeah. And you're like, yeah pills that you don't notice i feel like even that like yeah i got really gradually inclined that become hills to you yeah because i got really sick i was living in san francisco when it like when i got my sickest and that is i mean a notoriously hilly city but i lived like pretty close to the beach so it gets kind of flatter out there but it was the same it was like oh, my street is much steeper than I thought it was when I first moved here and yeah, exactly. had yeah. no issue walking <laughs> compared to I got to a point where sometimes I'd like text my husband to be like, can you meet me at the bus stop? Which was literally mm. a block and a half away and like small residential blocks. But it's just like, yeah, I need yeah. someone to kind of like nudge me so that I can walk home. That's where I'm at right now. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Like the kind of tiny little things like – for me stairs are a big thing and I'm kind of aware that I need to not stop going up and down stairs because then I'll like lose those particular muscles that you exercise when you do that but equally I don't want to go up and down stairs too much every day and you kind of like I would like have this um it's almost like become a game at this point of how much stuff can I carry downstairs so that I don't have to go back up again for a few hours you know kind of anticipating like what am I going to need for the next two or three hours and yeah yeah yeah, it's or just like, really bizarre things like that, isn't it? Yeah, just like what will I not have today because it's somewhere that I'm not yeah. going back to. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, completely. Oof. So I think we've covered a whole lot of things. Uh, is there anything that's in on your mind about kind of chronic illness or health or any of these things that we haven't gotten to for some reason? Um, I think the only other thing that I find really odd about it is like the end kind of in infantilizing of it like the way it makes you like in a lot of ways it makes you like a child mm-hmm. but in a lot of other ways like you're kind of standing there going I'm not a child but people are treating me like one um one of the weirdest things for me with that recently which shouldn't even be weird to me but is that like I've always kind of been able to buy clothes from the children's section because I'm really short but now I'm not the biggest size in the children's section I'm like the kind of age 12 size and like that's really bizarre I don't know why but in my head that's like a massive thing but also like kind of being in hospital and how kind of dependent you become on people and you know the stuff that like you kind of let people do to your body because it's medical but actually you know really the last time you had that kind of care done or that kind of the last time someone saw you in that position or whatever was probably when you were like a toddler mm-hmm. and yeah really really weird but also kind of having been you know working with children with really complex disabilities and some of them like people would talk to them like they were two and they were actually like had a like developmental age of like 10 to 15 year old but then other ones like because they were ambulant they get talked to like they were completely typical when they might have had the mental age of a two-year-old and this kind of like disparity between it all is yeah yeah really bizarre yeah 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 and like how 
yeah, bias just plays into that. And even yeah, when you're talking about hospital, I'm just thinking of some experiences that I've had recently where like, cons- how does consent work with me- in medical care, which um, like really small stuff. So I just like, I just had a neurology appointment and I just had um, an EMG done, you know, where they like poke you with the needle to see mm-hmm. how your nerves are, I guess. And the kind of thing where like, I, did, I had that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I had that yesterday. <laughs> That's fun. Um, but it's like yeah. some people are really good about telling you exactly what they're going to do and where they're going to touch you. And some people are not good at that. And like, mm. I personally would say that for me in those experiences, I was not bothered. It was like the way that I am and my body is and like my experience of this doctor is such that I don't mind that he just like basically reached up my gown to find my hip bone without telling me that that's what he was doing. But I'm also very aware that like this seems normal in medicine and it shouldn't Mm. be because it's like not trauma informed care. There are a lot of people who this would not be okay for. And like, like, it doesn't say anything. I'm not bragging. It doesn't say anything about me that I happen not to be bothered. It says something about him that this is so normalized that it didn't even occur to him. And that's messed up. Yeah. And like, but then you also find that like, like maybe a year and a half ago, I would have found things like that really strange. But now I'm just like, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> like you become doing. totally desensitized to it. You, you is very difficult to retain ownership over your body because mm-hmm. so many other people have a say in it or have like, power over it in a lot of ways and it doesn't need to be that they're abusing that power it's just the fact that they have it you know yeah kind of the fact that like someone approaches you in a hospital while you're inpatient and you just hold out your arm because you know that they want to measure your blood pressure because it's helps but it's not even like spoken about anymore it's just like yeah go go on yeah um one of the big problems that me and my friends have um so i was inpatient um in march and really massively coincidentally was impatient with two um, girls with like really similar issues who both also have feeding tubes, and um, normally like that like last time I was impatient like I was those of like elderly people who were really dehydrated and a like massively diabetic girl, um, so it was like you know you don't normally kind of get that situation, um, but we all universally had this issue that I didn't realise everyone else had as well where they won't let you not eat because you're vomiting all the time. Like, they don't trust you on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they come around with, like, the food. Or, like, they come around to, like, get you to order your food. And when you say, like, oh, I don't want anything, they won't they won't accept that. So you have to order something. And then when you get it, like, they're very reluctant to let you not eat it. And you're like, I'm literally in hospital because I can't keep food down. Yeah. I've got a feeding tube. I'm trying not to vomit it up, so can you just leave me alone? Like, they, but there's no trust with you, right. with like accepting that you know you have that autonomy to go like, okay, I can tolerate food right now, or I can't. Mm-hmm. And there's no kind of respect involved in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And last time I I was impatient, one of the girls I I said to her like, oh, I can't eat, like I won't order anything, and she was like, okay, went off, then to speak to the nurse, came back and went. The nurse says you can eat if you want to, and I was like, that's such a loaded statement, isn't it? Because it's like, if you want to, well, like, I'm in hospital because I can't eat. Do you think I really don't want to eat? Yeah. And it's kind of a bit of a kick in the teeth at that point, but 
we all ended up on nil by mouth because they put us on nil by mouth before a procedure and then never took it off again off mm -hmm. of our notes, which is terrible because we should have been given water and stuff. But it meant that we didn't have to have that argument again for the next four days. So I was like, yeah, it's, it's okay. A trade -off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but really bizarre. Like, yeah, the trust you, stuff is. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of get reduced to something, don't you? That like people don't realize that you still know your body best, but you also know everything that's wrong with your body the best. Mm -hmm. And while you might rely on like the doctors for like the procedures and the tests to like diagnose the actual kind of underlying issue, if you're having like massive tachycardic problems one day and you're just exhausted and need to lie down, people should trust you on that, and right. they don't at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm yeah yes that is a huge thing <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't even i don't even have anything to add to it except just vehemently agreeing that it's a huge yeah. problem that we that within the medical system we do not get to be like the number one representatives of our own bodies almost or yeah exactly yeah. But then you're also having to trust lots of other people with your body, regardless of whether they trust you or not, yeah. because you need them to, you know, help you or prescribe medication or, you know, also not prescribe medication if they know it's not going to help you and things like that. And mm -hmm. all of that is very kind of loaded as well, isn't it? Yeah. And so all this trust that's kind of bouncing back and forth between lots of different people and, and then alongside that you've got this bizarre game of Chinese whispers that's constantly being played between nurses and healthcare assistants and doctors and superior consultants and all that kind of thing and you're like I th there must be sort of between 30 and 40 people kind of involved in my care mm -hmm. between like and that's just the core people between like the secretaries I have to talk to and the like dietetics team and you know all the consultants that I see and then my primary care doctors and stuff um yeah that's a lot of people to all be trying to do one thing yeah <laughs> it's you know how do you keep goal. that together yeah yeah exactly yeah 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 medicine it's mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a thing that we you don't realize what it is until you become a patient do you like you're like oh <laughs> oh that's much more complicated than i realized <laughs> or like yeah. there's a lot more moving pieces than i thought yeah. yeah, a lot more politics as well, isn't there? Like, oh, and you yeah. kind of get to know the politics between, like, different people working in the hospital as well and what people you don't want to get between and what people you do and stuff like that. Yeah, really, really weird that you kind of get in. There's a massive kind of social community. Like, it's like a society going on that you have to kind of infiltrate and yeah. then you find yourself in the middle of it and you're like, oh, never yeah. mind. And, like, learn how to communicate with. Like, yeah, exactly. You need to learn, like, what to say and what not and stuff like that don't you yeah yeah it's like a code switch mm. <sighs> yes okay okay yeah uh well thank you so much for taking lots of time to talk to me oh um, yeah thank you for being like so understanding as well <laughs> yeah. yeah no i totally understand i mean especially for parents and stuff but like with chronic illness i know everybody is taking like giving me a huge amount of energy and there's i don't expect it to be perfect because that would be ridiculous and this isn't like a business podcast where everybody's trying to i don't know like have no background noise so that they can sell their products or whatever <laughs> yeah so that is great 
Thank you for listening to episode 41 of No End in Sight. You can find Annie on Instagram at keepingstars, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BennisB. And of course, you can find this show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. I post each episode as a story, but I haven't posted to the main feed in a while because I'm so behind on transcripts. But of course, that's the whole reason that I've started a Patreon account, which I'll go ahead and plug one more time. It's patreon.com slash noendinsight. Next week, I'll be talking to a nurse who now lives with severe ME, so make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when new episodes are available. And if you've been enjoying this show, I would be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners know what to expect from the show. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. I've got a few fall patterns in the shop and lots of just general icons, so check it out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.